Welcome to the official podcast for the Society of Urodynamics, Female Pelvic Medicine, and Urogenital Reconstruction. Here you will find podcasts highlighting clinically relevant topics, ongoing SUFU initiatives, SUFU member highlights, and much, much more. Thanks again very much for being here this morning, and thank you to our panelists for this uh, panel this morning where we're going to shift focus a little bit and talk about incontinence, specifically focusing on different, we had it up there, for, okay, we're good, uh, different conditions and when different types of procedures might be appropriate for different conditions. And I'd like to thank up front our panelists, Dr. Lenner couldn't be here, so she's joining us virtually and will join in at uh, the appropriate time. Dr. Milhouse and Dr. Powell, who are to my left and will contribute as well. So we're really gonna focus on six different scenarios where it's a bit controversial about what type of procedure we might use. We kind of brainstorm about things that might be useful to this group um, and where we all face struggles. So let's go ahead to the first slide. Okay, and here are the disclosures. So the first slide will be discussed by Dr. Milhouse. So this is a 38-year-old G3P3 women, a Zumba instructor. She currently uses one pad per day for leakage uh, with activities. It's lightly stained. She is sexually active. She does have a positive supine stress test, so there's no doubt about her incontinence. And her, she says she's not planning to have any more children. So Dr. Milhouse, how would you handle this? So um, we're discussing the treatment of stress incontinence in young patients who are still in their reproductive age. Um, how does possible the possibility of future pregnancy and childbirth affect how we treat stress incontinence in our index patient? Well, pregnancy and childbirth, as we know, are the biggest risk factors for stress incontinence. Uh, vaginal delivery carries a higher risk factor for stress incontinence than cesarean section. Uh, some surgeons recommend postponing any surgical treatment for stress incontinence until no future pregnancies are planned or women are past reproductive age. Um, some uh, obstetricians favor elective C-section for future deliveries if a patient reports a history of a previous stress incontinence surgery. So first question, is pregnancy safe after a stress incontinence operation? Does it affect the pregnancy itself? Uh, this was a, a series, uh, a small series, and based from California, and they looked at 26 patients who had uh, a sling or MUS surgery retropubic or transobturator, uh, and they looked at outcomes of pregnancy. And basically, one, they found no, no increased complication or MUS-related pregnancy complications in this small series. Of note, one patient did uh, have recurrent stress incontinence. Uh, so this was a uh, systemic review uh, looking at over 20, uh, 20 articles and a total of 118 patients. And again, looking at the safety of pregnancy after a, a midgerethral sling, or actually any stress incontinence surgery in this particular study. So it wasn't just limited to slings. And they found a very low risk of urinary retention during pregnancy. They had two patients who developed urinary retention that had to CIC during their pregnancy, one of which developed pyelonephritis. So pregnancy appears to be pretty safe even after stress incontinence surgery. So um, what about recurrent incontinence or, you know, what, what happens uh, to those women if they, say, become pregnant, deliver uh, after a previous uh, sling or uh, operation? Well, this was a cohort study from Sweden to assess, basically the outcome was recurrence of stress incontinence as reported by the patient after an index uh, mid-urethral sling procedure. Uh, so they had a study group of 163 
uh, patients who had had delivery, they included both vaginal and C-section, and they matched them with randomly with matched control, 374. And they found no significant difference in patient-reported stress incontinence uh, after the index midurethral sling surgery on a multivariate analysis. Even beyond that, they found that vaginal delivery as compared to C-section did not make a difference. It did not increase the risk of recurrent stress incontinence after the MUS surgery. So they concluded that childbirth of any mode actually is not associated with an increased risk of recurrent stress incontinence after a previous uh, midurethral sling. Uh, this is another study from uh, case control from Finland. Again, patients who had either retropubic or transobturator sling assess the recurrence of stress incontinence um, with matched controls with a median follow-up of uh, over 10 years. And again, um, the revisits for stress incontinence or mixed incontinence were found to be similar in both those who went on to deliver again and those who uh, did not. So there was no difference in the number of new procedures for stress incontinence. There was no um, difference in stress incontinence recurrence if you uh, had. So in conclusion, I would offer this patient a midurethral sling. Uh, we shouldn't neglect to treat young women who suffer with stress incontinence just because of the possibility of pregnancy. Midurethral sling operations have the most have been the most extensively studied surgical treatment for stress incontinence. Pregnancy is safe after a st uh, stress incontinence surgery. There may be a possible small risk of retention only. And uh, complications do not go up. Midurethral sling complications do not go up after or during or after uh, pregnancy. And it doesn't appear that actually this uh, recurrence of stress incontinence or the reop rate is different just because they went on to um, uh, have childbirth or be pregnant. Outstanding. Let's uh, change focus now a little bit and go with Dr. Leonard. So this is a different patient, 52-year-old, with uh, bothersome stress incontinence. At the end, hopefully, we'll have some time for questions for everybody if we leave a little time. So she's a VP at J.B. Morgan. She has three children, aged 12, 15, and 17. She's been tried on medications in the past. She's really not sure what she was tried on. She has pretty significant incontinence, three pads a day, has a positive supine stress test, and she says, I do not want to use pads anymore. Dr. Leonard, can you join us? Yes. Good morning, and thank you for letting me join you from 15 Degrees Salt Lake City. Um, so this woman uh, says, I don't want to use pads anymore. And, and actually, down here at the bottom, these are four of the 10 uh, vice presidents at J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, they, these are the women. These are the women that we're treating. Uh, so we can assume she's got demonstrable stress incontinence, assume with some potential urethral hypermobility, given her history. Um, and she empties to completion, but doesn't really have prolapse or has a very low-grade prolapse. Um, she might have some urgency incontinence that maybe contributed to her being tried on some of those medications in the past, um, but it's really stress predominant. Next slide, please. So this is a perfect opportunity for us to utilize our uh, stress urinary incontinence guidelines uh, provided to us by the AUA and SUFU. Um, because we have an otherwise healthy female considering uh, surgical therapy for the correction of pure stress or mixed urinary incontinence who hasn't had any previous surgeries. So our index patient that we have here um, could be offered by our guidelines, a midurethral sling. Um, and unfortunately, based off of the literature that we have and the number of outcomes that are, are um, 
uh, utilized. We don't have any good evidence to say whether this should be a retropubic or transobturator or a single incision sling um, because there's really excellent but variable long-term outcome for a lot of these different options. Um, alternatively, as she says, I really don't want to have mat, uh, any mesh in me. She could be offered a fascial sling and with good counseling, understand what, um, what the risks and benefits of a fascial sling would be. And then um, as I'll get to, part of the potential elephant in the room is the use of bulking agents. So next slide, please. So we, we need to utilize our patient-centered goals in this section. Um, so no pads means to me, she wants to be completely dry. Presumably she's pretty active. She's traveling a lot, carrying around a suitcase. Um, so she, she has uh, stressors in her life. She's not just sitting at a desk job. She has presented sounding like she wants to have a surgical correction. Um, and a mid-urethral sling would probably be the safest and most efficacious uh, in most of our hands. This is a durable uh, treatment, um, doesn't need uh, a lot of retreatments in the hands of an adequately trained surgeon. Um, the, the risks, though, that we need to consider are her recovery time. I have some women that say, but can I go and play tennis tomorrow? Um, the other risks uh, are quite variable in the literature and listed here um, that could be variable according to your, your practice. And again, if she wants to avoid mesh, would she be okay considering a lower efficacy treatment? Next slide. So this brings us to tomorrow. There's a point-counterpoint discussion uh, of a mid-urethral sling versus bulking in a 55-year-old woman with stress incontinence tomorrow at 1.40 between Dr. Goldman and Dr. Rovner. And I look forward to the discussion because this is much more of a nuanced um, issue than can be managed in a two-minute plug on uh, management of our VP at J.P. Morgan Chase. Next slide. Okay, so let's move on to another one. This is third case for, doc, for Dr. Powell. It's a 62-year-old woman with leakage with cough and any activities. Three years ago, she's uh, reported having a mid-rethal mesh sling, which she says, quote, unquote, never helped. She had no urinary tract infection, really now no minimal urgency, does use two pads per day. She does have stress incontinence on exam during a supine stress test and not a lot of prolapse. So Dr. Powell. All right, thanks, Gary. So this is a really this is a really thoughtful case because this happens, uh, and I'm sure all of us in the room have seen this patient, probably see this patient on a pretty regular basis. And so I think the question we first have to answer is why did the sling fail? And so one possibility that comes to mind, I think it's probably forefront in all of our minds, is was this a case of mesh erosion? We do cystoscopy. Is there urethral um, mesh? Is there a lack of coaptation? Of course, the answer for that is simple. Um, we take the sling out, we do a urethroplasty and possibly a martius flap. Uh, we also look for evidence of other mesh erosion in the vagina. But the other possibility is maybe this sling is too loose. Urodynamics can help us tease that out. We'll see persistent stress incontinence uh, with cough. Or maybe the sling is too tight. Maybe we've got a case of overflow incontinence. And so in that case, we'd want a post-void residual in urodynamics. If we choose to revise this... Um, the literature does support doing a single incision of that sling, and the incontinence rates following that are very low. They're a little higher if you do a total mesh excision, and um, but I think either way is a, is a reasonable option. I think we leave that up to the patient. Um, the other possibility, the fourth possibility, is this sling is in the wrong location. Perhaps it has migrated to the bladder neck during placement. Um, 
aerodynamics will make that look just like stress incontinence. And uh, the final possibility, and I realize this is a panel on stress incontinence and slings and bulking agents, but is this a case of de novo or pre-existing detrusor overactivity? Again, teased out with aerodynamics, and we all know that that gives us a roughly 2.5 odds ratio of failure of our sling if that exists. And so I think we need to think about those options. So the question really, I think, would be interesting if we have time to discuss this later. If you need a tighter sling, do you need to remove the existing sling if it's not eroded? And if you do remove it only for pain, of course, we know that that doesn't always help the pain from the literature. And related to that, um, if you need a, uh, if you do take this out, do you need to put a fascia sling since this was not a case of an eroded sling? I think we have to weigh the risks and benefits of that because, as we know, the fascia sling is obstructive, uh, a little higher chance of urinary retention. Um, and if it is a second sling, if this is a redo sling, the odds that we are going to need some kind of bulking agent uh, goes up a little bit um, after that. So that's all I have for that. Okay, a few more, and let's see a little more uh, controversial as well for Dr. Milhouse. So this is a 73-year-old woman, history of radiation for cervical cancer, ultimately a hysterectomy. She leaks significantly with activities and also has some urgency. She is, uses four pads a day at least on exam. There's significant atrophy. She does have stress incontinence. There's no prolapse. And she's already had urodynamics. She has sphincteric uh, deficiency. She has no overactivity. She has normal compliance. You're not worried about that. So where should we go with this? Thank you. Okay, so let's talk about the fixed urethra and ISD. Um, thanks to one of our forefathers of our subspecialty, um, uh, we know that the, uh, in ISD patients, he popularized the autologous uh, fascial sling. Um, what is ISD is not 100% um, uh, standardized or um, agreed upon, but generally it's thought to be a Valsalva leak point pressure less than 60 and maximum urethral closure pressure less than 20. Um, and again, the rectus fascial sling was popularized as the treatment of choice for ISD. Uh, we, IS, we know that ISD patients have lower, lower cure rates with the traditional uh, or mid-urethral sling. Uh, it impacts the outcome. This was a retrospective study looking at subjective and objective cure uh, one year with patients who had ISD and comparing uh, those who did not. Everyone in this study, uh, which was pretty large, uh, had urodynamics pre and post, and ISD had significantly lower objective and subjective cure rates after mid-urethral sling, irrespective of sling type. Um, factors predicting failure included reduced urethral mobility, uh, lower maximum urethral closure pressure, and tape position further away from the bladder neck. Balking agents, let's talk about them. Well, uh, balking agents aren't effective long-term, unfortunately. Uh, this was a review in the literature that found that balking agents are not effective after one year. Uh, this was a randomized control trial comparing macroplastique to, uh, trans, uh, to a pubovaginal sling, and it, they found that at 62 months, the sling group had much better continence success as compared to matroplastique uh, bulking. So um, autologous fascial slings, they, um, I consider this to be the gold standard, um, particularly for ISD patients. Uh, this was a contem contemporary literature review of 22 articles. Uh, the fascial sling is preferred in cases of previous radiation. This, this patient had pelvic uh, radiation 
because of that, we have to consider that the tissue fibrosis, not only are cure rates potentially less with the midurethral sling, but complication rates are probably going to be increased in this patient with the midurethral sling. So fascial sling seems like the better way to go. It's ex the accepted treated uh, treatment of choice for more complicated cases um, uh, for stress incontinence, and I would argue that she is definitely a more complicated case. Um, and it can be placed with tension to allow the bladder neck um, obstruction for really severe cases of ISD. All right, back to Salt Lake City. Dr. Leonard, 87 year old with mixed urinary incontinence. Uh, she's on Eliquis, she's had a history of pulmonary emboli, and she has OAB and an urge component, but they've been adequately managed on medication. She does have persistently bothersome stress incontinence. She uses quite a few pads that are quite wet, but she does remain very active and desires to, to remain active. So Dr. Leonard, where do we go with that challenging patient? So this is where I would make the argument for less is more. Uh, we have comorbidity considerations. Uh, this is a group of nice and healthy, uh, healthier elderly women uh, doing their water aerobics. But she could be on the spectrum of more, um, you know, maybe only able to go get in the pool once or twice a week. Um, she's on chronic blood thinners for a potentially fatal condition. And we don't know very much about her PE, so it could have been potentially a provoked uh, PE with a, a, a prior surgery or something like that. So we, we really need to be thinking about less might necessarily be more for her. And the goal is not necessarily to make her completely dry. The other thing to keep in mind is that while they come in and they complain that they have stress incontinence and they have demonstrable stress incontinence, um, there's oftentimes uh, a mixed urinary incontinence component here because uh, um, this is the most common type of urinary incontinence in the elderly. Uh, and so while she may be controlled on some medications, she might need a little bit more to get her better improved. Next slide, please. So they're perfectly acceptable non-invasive treatments for stress urinary incontinence. Uh, pelvic floor muscle exercises with a trained pelvic floor physical therapist can be amazingly helpful, uh, plus or minus biofeedback if that's available in that practice. Um, additionally, anti-incontinence pessaries or vaginal inserts could be used, and then there's bulk, urethral bulking and combination treatments of these, uh, up, um, uh, these listed interventions. Next slide, please. When I was thinking about this type of scenario, I'm thinking, well, she maybe she just needs to go to the pool three times a week. Like, what, what are we really trying to achieve here for her? Um, and so would it potentially be a, a really viable option to have her use uh, what, what we've all gotten to know, which is the poison pressa vaginal uh, insert, which is disposable. And so I looked into the literature and, and you know, on a case by case basis, when you take some of these patients, uh, here the white bars are, are these women, uh, their pad weights before using the poison pressa, and then the black bars are after using the poison pressa. So, you know, if you can get her pretty dry, she can go to the pool. And if she only needs to use this for a couple hours a day or something like that, and she can remove it and replace it herself, that's great. Similarly, a pessary, if a female is able to remove it and replace it themselves, uh, if they just want to use it periodically, they could, um, or they could have it managed by somebody else. Um, the other thing I have up here is the, are the quality of life um, scores for patients using um, 
the uh, poison pressa. And so I think that while some women complain about the pain, is that really just vulvovaginal atrophy and they're not using appropriate um, estrogen uh, to use it? Um, but I think that this is something that somebody could consider using. Uh, also, it's just a couple, it's $1.70 uh, per applicator on at Walmart. So, you know, it's not that much of a cost. It's less than the pads they'd be using per day for those hours that they had that placed. Next slide. The other thing the, uh, to consider is uh, multimodal co combination therapy. So this is a prospective observational study that was done in Europe using Bulkamid and Botox. And this is that actual age group. This is a median age of 75 years old. And they looked at 55 women with stress predominant mixed incontinence, and they injected two cc's of Bulkamid for their stress incontinence. And then they did have a, 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 a different type of injection parameter for their Botox. 50 to 200 units, but um, at one year follow-up, objectively, the stress and urgency um, scores are quite acceptable. The, um, the, the orange means that it's, it's improved and the yellow means, uh, sorry, the green means that it's, it's completely gone. Um, their subjective uh, results, I think, are a, a factor of how they um, didn't necessarily re-inject the Botox quite rapidly. So the stress incontinence was still improved with the Bulkamid at one year, and then uh, the urgency urinary incontinence dropped off a little bit. But again, I think because they needed to re-inject their Botox. Next slide, please. So finally, I would just uh, say that there's a, the, the other side of this discussion is the reason to not do more. Um, this is from a, um, a recent study out of Ann Suskind where she did an analysis of Medicare women greater than 65 years old. And she, she's done this uh, in several different topics, but this is specifically for the slings in older women. And basically there is a very significant increase in 30-day complications from uh, just doing a simple sling surgery, uh, and these are cardiovascular, renal, and pulmonary complications. And so you can see in the table here, the not frail group uh, has about a 17% risk of 30% complications, and this increases exponentially. So we don't know exactly what the, what the mobility or what the get up and go test would be uh, for this patient, but um, we can assume that uh, as she gets older, that the risk of, of complications from that surgery would be, um, would be higher. So I really want to focus on you know, less is potentially more tailor, tailoring these um, interventions specifically for patients and, um, and talking about what the, what the risks and benefits would be for these patients. Thank you very much. Okay, one last one very quickly. So 63-year-old with mixed urinary incontinence, also large volume leakage when sitting to standing, urodynamics show DOI and stress incontinence. She's had meds that have been moderately helpful at best. Bother is equal. Dr. Powell. This is, a, this is another very thoughtful uh, case, and I think we see these patients as well, um, but not as commonly as we see the sling that didn't quite work. So what's really going on here, the ICS defines this, the key feature is the movement, um, you know, getting up, um, standing from a sitting position. And the ICS calls this postural incontinence. And so another term for this, there could be, in my opinion, four things going on here. And I think we have to tease those out. The first would be provoked or stress-mediated urge incontinence. And although this is, again, a talk about stress incontinence, I think we have to consider overactivity as a possibility. Refractory OAB wet, overflow incontinence, 
Um, and, um, and so I think the uh, other thing we have to do is rule out things like noncompliance with meds, uh, stress incontinence uh, guidelines do justify doing urodynamics with mixed incontinence. So if it is stress-mediated or provoked urge incontinence, I think we're going to see a very characteristic urodynamic study that I wanted to review really quick for everybody. We see the cough at the lower end of this urodynamic study followed by some detrusor overactivity. And the key feature to stress-mediated or provoked urge incontinence is you see the leak actually happen associated with the detrusor overactivity and not with the cough. And so uh, the other possibility, refractory OAB wet, you know, I think then we go to third-line therapy. We're all familiar with sacral neuromodulation on a botulinum toxin or posterior tibial nerve stimulation. I think those are all great options uh, for this patient. However, I wanted to just point out there are some new possibilities in the pipeline that are not FDA approved currently, but I want to just review the names of some of these options really quickly. They're all under study protocols. The first is, um, let me go back one. The uh, StimGuard device, this is essentially very similar to a, a sacral neuromodulation lead with tines, but it has a circuit built into the wire, and the patient wears a battery-powered sock that powers this device externally through the skin. The other possibility is the E-Coin, which has its own battery, and it's more of a field effect device, and this stimulates the area around the tibial nerve. And that's, again, in clinical trials. The stem router, which is the Bion device, which is sutured uh, adjacent to the posterior tibial nerve. And again, like the first device, powered externally. And finally, the Renova Blue Wind, which is also powered externally with a battery the patient wears as a sock. And so I think these are novel devices are very exciting because, as we know, posterior tibial nerve stimulation is tough for a lot of patients who have transportation issues or just don't want to keep coming back. So finally, just classic stress incontinence. I don't really need to explain that very much. I think that's a possibility with postural incontinence as well as, as this patient demonstrates. So thanks a lot. For questions, but I appreciate the panel staying on time. And please approach them if you have any questions about their talk. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's episode on the Sufu Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast streaming app. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter with our handle at SuFuOrg, where we'll provide real-time updates of our next podcast episode launch. And be sure to check us out on our website, www.sufuorg.com.